0: Revelation chapter three, beginning with verse one, we read, "'And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, "'These things says he who has the seven spirits of God "'and the seven stars, I know your works, "'that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. "'Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain "'that are ready to die.'" I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember therefore how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names even in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we've done with all of these letters, we're going to start by setting a bit of backdrop by looking at the city in which this church was located, that being the city of Sardis. Sardis was an inland city located about 50 miles east of Ephesus. Ephesus was kind of the central hub of which all of these churches surrounded. Sardis had been the capital of an ancient kingdom of Lydia and later an important municipality to the Persian Empire. The city was strategic. It was strategically built. It was built on top of a plateau rising approximately 1,500 feet from a significant trade route that connected the interior portion of Asia Minor with the coast. As a result, throughout Sardis' history, this city proved to be not just a strategic trade route, but a strategic military posting. Because of her physical location on top of this plateau, the city was largely considered to be impregnable. And yet, the story of Sardis is an interesting one because though the city was built in such a way that it would be impossible for conquering armies uh, to siege it, twice in her history, the city of Sardis would fall for the same tragic reason. Greek historian Herodotus tells of the fall of Sardis in 549 B.C., by then Persian king Cyrus. Knowing that Sardis was the linchpin to conquering the region, he needed a desperate way to get into the city. The steep cliffs, the steep walls, provided a natural defense. His military advisors were at a loss for how they could take the city. After exhausting their options, their resources, their collective might, Cyrus put it to his army Put it to the soldiers. He offered a reward to anyone who could figure out a way to get into the city undetected. Now, as the story goes, there was one soldier who happened to be looking for a particular way into the city when he noticed that one of the, the watchmen on the walls dropped his helmet and it tumbled down the cliff. Now, thinking there would be no way that soldier would go to retrieve the helmet, One of Cyrus' soldiers said, yeah, I'll, I'll take a look. Sure enough. Without realizing that he was being watched, the soldier who had dropped his helmet proceeded to exit one of the gates and go down a secret trail to retrieve his helmet. Now, not only did this trail reveal the way into the city, but that night when Cyrus' men went up to the city, to the gates, they were shocked at what they found. The citizens of Sardis were so confident in their natural defenses that they felt no need to even set a watch for the night. No one was guarding the gates. The city fell. It was unguarded. As the citizens slept, Cyrus took the city unchallenged. To make matters worse, you would think you would learn your lesson. The city fell the exact same way to Antiochus the Great, some 200 years later, 214 BC. Now, during this time period, some things had happened in Sardis that really morphed it from being this strategic military capital. According to Roman historian, historians, in 17 AD, the city of Sardis was destroyed by an earthquake. And because of the, the, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, the fact that the city was really no longer needed to be a strategic military center, uh, Rome decided to rebuild Sardis, not on top of the plateau, but now instead actually along the trade route in the valley. By the end of the first century, when Jesus is writing to this local church, Sardis was a city in decline. She really lacked a fundamental purpose. While she would always revel in her past glories, her former reputation, over just a few centuries, Sardis' influence and importance would dissipate. The final death blow would come when Constantine moved the capital from Rome to Constantinople, the new capital of the east. And as a result, since the trade route that Sardis so desperately relied on now was no longer necessary, the city quickly became nothing more than a set of ruins dedicated, set aside, for former fame and glory. The backdrop of Sardis, as we'll see, is significant, but also we find that the context is important for understanding the totality of what Jesus is trying to communicate. And as we've done looking at the post-apostolic church and then the persecuted church and then the Byzantine church and then the Roman Catholic church, this particular letter, the letter written to the church in Sardis, we understand to be addressed to Protestantism. Though the Roman Catholic Church would dominate the landscape of Christianity for approximately 1,200 years, a few significant rubblings during the 13th and 14th centuries would set the stage for a change that would not only affect the church, but would affect the world as a whole. While the Bible had been translated from its original language, that being Greek and Hebrew, into Latin, it had never been translated into the common language of the people, As a result, it was only the educated class of priests who could read Scripture, and then since the Mass was done in Latin as well, not the common tongue of the people, the Masses at large had no exposure to the written Word of God, zero exposure. Enter John Wycliffe. Not only was Wycliffe an open dissident of the Roman Catholic Church, specifically Uh, He was just not a big fan of papal authority and the abuses of papal authority. But Wycliffe's big deal is that he felt God's word, scripture alone, should be seen as the only reliable guide to the truth of God. That it shouldn't just be a priest's opinion or the Pope's declarations, but that the word itself is unique and it's set apart that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to change a heart. Wycliffe was a big fan of the Bible. And as a result, he made it his life's work to translate the Bible into the common language of the people so all could read the Bible for themselves. In 1382, Wycliffe completed his English translation of the Bible from Latin. Now, though Wycliffe died of natural causes on December 28, 1384. What Wycliffe did set a trend of people reading Scripture for themselves, then beginning to challenge Catholic doctrine, something that the Pope and the hierarchies of the church didn't appreciate. As a matter of fact, they quite hated it. They hated it so much, what Wycliffe had started, that the Council of Constance retroactively declared... uh, John Wycliffe, a heretic. On May 4, 1445, so he's been dead like 30 years, the Pope formally decreed that Wycliffe's works and his Bible be burned and that they go dig up his body and also burn it as well. It's pretty extreme, isn't it? You gotta hate a guy to go to that extreme. Now, following Wycliffe, there were a few other men, most notably a man by the name of John Huss who would continue to work within the church. And that's significant. Working within the church for the next 75 years, trying to bring about necessary changes. And yet, by the 16th century, the early 16th century, it had become clear to most of these dissidents, most of these priests within the church trying to work for change, that the church and her corrupted leaders would be unwilling to enact any meaningful reforms. Enter Martin Luther. As a result of Johann Tessel's selling of indulgences, among other things, in Germany, and he did this to raise money to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica, on October 31st, 1517, which for the most part is a date you should keep in mind, it's a significant date in, in, in world history, this German priest, Martin Luther, had had enough. He was moved to act and in an act of defiance, Luther went to the castle church there in Wittenberg and he nailed to the door what's known today as his 95 thesis. He was protesting what he felt were intolerable beliefs and practices of the Roman Catholic church. Now, many see that singular act as the catalyst for what we know today as the Protestant Reformation. It's pretty cool, you can go to Wittenberg today, you can visit Luther's house, you can visit the castle church, you can see the very door on which this thesis was was placed. But along with Luther, there were other men, like Calvin and Zwingli, who would break from the Catholic church. They would translate scripture into the common language. Luther translated scripture into German. And they would all eventually start their own church movements, the Protestant Reformation. Today, denominational movements such as Lutheranism, Presbyterianism, Episcopalianism, Quakerism, and Anglicanism, lots of isms, but they all find their root in the early days of the Protestant Reformation. And yet, while the church will always be indebted to what these reformers did, I mean, what they did took guts. It 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 took bravery. Many of them died for what they did. But the sad reality is that the reforms brought about by Protestantism failed to go far enough. Though the foundational principles of the Reformation, which if you're a note taker, you can jot them down, Bible alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, the four pillars of the Reformation, while they changed the theological belief structure of the church, the Protestant Reformation failed to bring about a revival of the church itself. The Reformation changed beliefs, but it didn't change practices. I'll give you two easy examples. Even it's in, in its inception, the Reformation failed to deal with with one of the underlying problems that created the Roman Catholic Church. If you remember back with the Byzantine Church, what was happening? What birthed this monstrosity? It was the state church. As a fact of history, these Protestant movements, these churches, almost immediately became state churches, which created and fostered the same type of immoral behavior and political corruption that had been found in Catholicism. Just look at the history of the Church of England. Beyond this, though many of the reformers suffered, I mean, immensely, at the hands of the Catholic Church, a church that resisted their theological beliefs and positions. Tragically, the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Church, these reformers, proved to be just as intolerant of other people who also broke from their belief structure. I'll give you an easy example. One of Zwingli's disciples started a movement. I mean, 99.9%, they were just, they were legit with it. They They were rocking and rolling with Zwingli, except for one thing, the idea of infant baptism. This group, felt like instead of infant baptism, scripture presented what's known as the believer's baptism. That baptism doesn't happen for salvation, it's a response of salvation. An outward demonstration of an inward transformation, they believe that baptism should be reserved for the person who makes a decision to follow Jesus, not infants. And for that singular belief, this group known as the Anabaptists were persecuted beyond belief by not just the Catholic church, but also the Protestant church. Historically, we know, quote, that while in Catholic countries, they were executed by burning at the stake, in Lutheran and Zwinglian states, Anabaptists were generally executed by beheading or drowning. Identical grievances and practices. So the Reformation, I mean, we. We are indebted to the Reformation. Protestant Reformation did a lot for the church. We're not all Catholic as a result of it, but it didn't go far enough. There were certain aspects of the Reformation that failed to bring about revival, change in theology, but not a change of the heart. You know, what's really amazing about this letter is that Jesus has zero, no, zip, zilch, nada, he has absolutely nothing nice to say. There's no commendation for the churches of the Protestant Reformation. As we'll see, all Jesus had were strong criticisms. I mean, that's amazing, think about that for a moment. Jesus had nicer things to say about the Roman Catholic Church or Constantine's church than he did for Luther and Calvin's church kind of a shocking thought. Keep in mind, as much as it's trendy to admire the early reformers, if our church existed in the 16th century, these very men who we sometimes admire would be calling us heretics and calling for us to be executed. Our church in the 16th century would be illegal, even in reformed states. So Jesus has nothing nice to say. And you know, you teach your kids, if you had nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? Jesus isn't following suit with that because he has nothing nice to say and he has a lot of bad things to point out. Let's look at his criticisms. Jesus begins, I know your works. All right. He said that to everyone. So don't feel too good about that. It's just kind of a formality at this point. I know your works that you have a name that you are alive but you are dead. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I mean, if you imagine getting this letter, you're the pastor of the church of Sardis and you get up you're like, guys, we got a letter from Jesus. And you're reading through it and you're like, I know your works, that you have a name, that you're alive. Yes, 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 but you're dead. Wait, clearly I didn't read that right. I mean, that's kind of a provocative statement. Though this church had a reputation of life, and apparent vitality within the community, which is substantiated by their works and the reputation that they had a name, that they were alive. The reality is that neither of these two things were connected to reality. What was happening within this church was only according to Jesus, the illusion, illusions, Michael, the illusion of life. As far as Jesus was concerned, the illusions, Michael, that's an Arrested Development reference. Some of you got it, some of you didn't. Just pointing it out. As far as Jesus was concerned, their reputation and activity were seen as nothing more than the evidence of past life. I mean, there's really no wiggle room. In the Greek, this word dead, or necros, it literally means dead. Like, there's no ambiguity, it's dead. Dead as in dead, dead, dead. I mean, you go to the original language, you can reach no other conclusion other than they were dead. They acted alive, they had the reputation of being alive, but in actuality, Jesus is saying, you are dead. Now, that's kind of a weird thing, right? I know your works, but you're dead. Wait a second, huh? I know your works, you're act- but you're dead. You're doing all of these things, but you're dead. You have a reputation, of being, but you're dead. That's kind of a weird thing. You're dead, but you're still acting like you're alive. Like, now that might be a weird concept to everyone that doesn't live in Winder. Because as I, as I recently discovered, if you have a chicken whose life expectancy has, has run out and it needs to die. You can take a gun, true story, and you can shoot its head off and that chicken will still run around like it's alive. It's dead, it got no head. I mean, it's as dead as dead can be. But it just hadn't, the rest of the body hadn't gotten the message. It just runs around. You know, there are stars that are, that are billions of light years away that, you know, we're told are dead. Like they actually aren't there anymore, but we still see the light of them because of the way, you know, light travels and light years and distance and all that. They, some of the stars you see, that's so pretty. It's dead. It died a while ago. You're just seeing the residual light. If, you, if, you, if those two mental pictures don't help you imagine what's going on here, I'll give you another one. This is kind of like a weekend at Bernie's moment. Like Bernie's dead. I mean, there's no, there's no debate, he's dead. And yet, I mean, he's acting like he's alive. He's riding around with his buddies. He's giving people high fives. You know, he's going to play. I mean, he looks like he's alive, but in reality, he's dead. They're dead. Jesus continues. He says, I have not found your works. Perfect before God. In addition to their, their works not being evidence of life, God's not even pleased with them. The New Living Bible translates this, this sentence as, Your deeds are far from right and the sight of God. I find that to be helpful. Sadly, as we've noted, while the Protestant Reformation corrected faulty theology, she failed to enact any type of lasting change in the hearts of people, in a sense. What we have presented within the church of Sardis is a church that was so right, they were dead right. It was a church of a dead orthodoxy. Their theology T's were crossed and I's were dotted. They had everything in regards to their hermeneutics and bibliology all figured out, but there was no life. They were dead. Yes, there had been a changing of the mind, of which I'm very thankful for, but there had not been a change of direction. Finally, Jesus has one more criticism. And, if, and if, <laughs> if dead, your works aren't pleasing to God, I mean, this third one, bear with me, because Jesus accuses them of, quote, defiling their garments. And yes, that means what you think it means. Though they had began, with this fresh start, a clean break from Catholicism, Catholic corruption. It didn't take long for this church to poop their pants, to defile themselves, literally to soil themselves. Not only were they dead, they smelled dead. They stunk. Jesus is like, I gave you a new garment, but you've defiled it. There's poop stains all over it. It's gross. It's disgusting. And if that terminology shocks you or ruffles your feathers, that's the intention. Because that's what Jesus is communicating by saying, you've defiled your garments. So the criticism here is heavy. Now let's look at his counsel with the, the warning and reward. He says to them, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Now, in regards to this whole concept of death, you are dead. David Guzik makes an interesting observation. He says this concerning the church in Sardis. Dead indicates no struggle, no fight. It wasn't that this church at Sardis was losing the battle. A dead body has lost the battle. The fight is over. This phrase, be watchful can be translated as wake up which you can imagine upon reading this concerning the history of Sardis that that had to kind of be a shocking statement that they 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 recognized what Jesus was saying very internally like twice their impregnable city with this natural defense it had fallen to an invading army for two Two times, why? Because they had fallen asleep. Because they had refused to watch. They had been given all of this benefit, all of this natural momentum. But they had been lulled to sleep, which is why Jesus is saying, wake up. Wake up. Not only did they need to awaken to the reality that their comfort had transitioned into complacency, which had now grown into apathy. But they needed to to awaken to the reality that they were running the risk of missing something very important. And that being Jesus is coming, the rapture of the church. Jesus warns, look at it. Therefore, if you will not watch, if you won't wake up, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know the hour that I'll come upon you. Now keep in mind a thief. Thief is not your friend. A thief doesn't have your best interest in mind. Thief is not looking out for your property or your family. A thief is one who unexpectedly snatches away from you something of value. A thief doesn't set an appointment. Hey, if you guys could just, you know, next Thursday around four o'clock, just not be at home, it would just make it so much easier for me to steal your stuff. Like, that's not what happens. They show up when you're not expecting it. Now, because Jesus is speaking to a dead church, it's my belief that this is a reference to the rapture of the faithful, which we'll see there was a faithful element within this church, and likely the beginnings of what is known theologically as the day of the Lord or seven years of great tribulation or Daniel's 70th week though the rapture is a glorious moment, when the groom comes for his bride before he pours out judgment for the rest of the world and this dead church included, the rapture will be seen as a grand heist. Jesus is telling this church, the churches coming out of the Protestant Reformation, our church, that if we don't wake up, we can run the risk of being so dead, he doesn't consider us his bride and he leaves us behind. Now notice that Jesus affirms that there were those within this church, a few faithful believers among a dead majority. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, it's shocking, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes, shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, to this faithful remnant, to these saints, Jesus issues a couple promises. Let's look at them. He says, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. William what made these believers worthy of being clothed in white garments. What made them worthy? It was the fact that they were walking with Jesus. It's how this sentence is structured. Walking with Jesus made them worthy of being clothed in white. It was their relationship with Jesus, this faithful few, and therefore his imputed righteousness. They were not worthy because of anything they were doing. You know, the only thing you're supposed to do to be right before God, the only thing you're to do is to follow Jesus. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It's a relationship with Jesus that makes us worthy, that makes these people worthy of being not just his bride, but a bride clothed and white, pure and undefiled. Jesus also says, I will not block out his name, blot out his name, from the book of life. William Barclay, he observed that, quote, in ancient times, cities kept a register of their citizens, living citizens. And when a man died, his name was removed from the register. Now, there there are various ways you can look at what Jesus is saying here. I tend to be of the opinion that everyone's name is written in the book of life, but if you reject Jesus... When it comes to judgment, your name will be blotted out, that you will no longer be included in the book of life. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, we gain another glimpse into this particular book. John writes, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them, and I saw the dead standing before God, and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. The sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Notice, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, now whether you feel like your name can be written and then later blotted out or that your name is there, but then can later be blotted out. There's this concept of a blotting out of a name. That's not good regardless of your particular position. Now I do think in context, the whole point of what Jesus is bringing to the forefront is an assurance of salvation to this faithful remnant in a dead church, he's like, hold on, you're doing good. I'll clothe you in white. I won't blot your name out, implying that I'll blot out others. But regardless, there is an assurance. Either way, here's the point. You want your name in the book, okay? So do some scripture study, look through it, and just figure out how your name needs to be in it. That's the most important part. Look again at what Jesus says. He says, I will confess his name. It's another promise. Before my Father, this word confess it means to acknowledge openly and joyfully. It it can literally mean to celebrate or to praise. I love that. Like Jesus is saying, if 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 you hold fast this faithful remnant, I'll clothe you in white. You have the assurance of heaven, and I will confess. I'll celebrate you before my Father that it'll be this joyful experience when you come into the throne. That's the type of experience I want to have. Jesus says something interesting in Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. He says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven. Now, though the situation in Sardis was bleak, I mean, it's pretty bleak, It wasn't completely hopeless. In addition to telling them to wake up, Jesus also exhorts, look at it, to quote, strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die by what? Remembering how you have received and heard before holding fast and repenting. Now, while there was no doubt this church was down for the count, she wasn't fully out of the fight. I mean, we're 12 rounds in. Rocky's face is bloody and bruised. He's laying on the mat. And there's Mick in the corner. Get up, Rock. Get up. It's not over. You're down. But it doesn't have to be the end. You got to get up. And then he gives some advice. Now, there's no doubt that we have an interesting phrase here. He says, remember, therefore. That's the first thing he says, remember, which which literally means to drive your mind back to something. So we should ask, if it's important for me to drive my mind back to something, what is Jesus wanting this dead church to remember? First, this phrase, you have received. I I think it's significant. Not for what it says, but what it implies. I see this, you have received, as Jesus' way of getting this church to remember what they had been given in the beginning that they were now lacking in the present. Did you notice the way Jesus introduces himself to this church in the first part of the letter? We've mentioned this before, that the way Jesus presents himself, reveals himself in the very beginning is significant because that revelation of himself will be paramount to the solution of whatever that church happened to be dealing with that ultimately our solution to any problem is more of Jesus and more of an understanding of Jesus and more of a connection to Jesus. But but look at how Jesus introduces himself because I think it's important in context. He says, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, now we've already talked about how the seven stars represented Jesus' authority, authority, over the church by his authority over the pastors. In chapter one, at the end of the chapter, the seven stars are the pastors or the messengers, the angels of these various churches. But we also have something mentioned here that's also referred to in chapter one that I think is kind of the key, the solution to what this church was really experiencing, their, their real problem. He says, I'm the one who has the seven spirits of God. This phrase, the seven spirits of God, is a Old Testament reference. As a matter of fact, if you go to Isaiah 11, we'll put it up on the screen for you, verses one and two. We're told by the prophet that there shall come forth a rod, a staff, from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Now that's messianic. This is speaking of Jesus. And we're told that this rod, this branch, that the spirit of the Lord shall be upon him, one. The spirit of wisdom upon him, two. The spirit of understanding, three. The spirit of counsel, uh, four. The counsel, uh, spirit of might, five. The spirit of knowledge, six. And the fear of the Lord, or the seventh spirit. You see, what this church, what was going on, why they were dead. And you know what? Maybe this morning, The same can be said of you, that you're dead, spiritually. The reason you are, the reason this church was, it's a simple thing. They were no longer dependent on the spirit of God. That there had been a disconnect between the source of all life, that being the indwelling spirit. They had exchanged godly dependency for human sufficiency. Thus they had rejected the spirit of the Lord. They had exchanged divine wisdom for human intelligence. Thus they had left the spirit of wisdom. They exchanged heavenly perception for human discernment. Thus they had rejected the spirit of understanding. They had exchanged spiritual intuition for human rationality. They had rejected the spirit of counsel They exchanged the supernatural power of God for human strength. Thus, they had rejected the spirit of might. They exchanged holy acumen for human proficiency. Thus, they had left the spirit of knowledge. They had exchanged righteous desire for human relevancy. Thus, they had left the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Their fundamental problem is that they were no longer connected to the Holy Spirit. You see, what this dead church needed more than anything, was a fresh moving of the Holy Spirit. They needed Jesus, the one who held the Spirit, to send the Spirit, to provide them fresh life, renewed passion. Well, Jesus made it clear in the very beginning of his letter that he alone was the dispenser of such things. You need the Spirit. It's a good thing I'm the dispenser of the Spirit. But here was the question. Would they receive the Spirit? This is why, secondly, Jesus stresses that they remember how they had received the Holy Spirit in the beginning. Notice, Jesus didn't say, remember what you have received. The receiving is implied. Their problem was not doctrinal nor was it theological. It wasn't a problem with the what. The problem was the how. Look at it, remember how, or in what way you have received. Received what? The Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus said, that whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Paul would say in Galatians 3, this only I wanna learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit? By the work, works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish then? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You see, what Jesus is wanting them to get back to is you're dead because you don't have the spirit of life. What you need to remember is how you had received that spirit to begin with because I'm willing to give it freely, openly. I won't withhold anything good, especially the spirit of God. But what was required? humility, and a childlike faith. In conclusion, what is Jesus saying to us? What is he saying to to us individually and us corporately? Well, Richard Rohr, who is a well-known Franciscan priest and author, has observed that history presents an interesting pattern that happens over time in church movements. He calls the, the cycle, the four Ms. Man, movement, machine, and monument. First, a man. It all begins with a man. A man is used by God in a very powerful way. He's called out by God. He's filled with the spirit of God. He breaks the norm and pioneers a new way of doing things or scripturally, a return to the right way of doing things. Martin Luther, no doubt one of these men, John and Charles Wesley, men that God raised up to start things. Our own Pastor Chuck, who started Calvary Chapel, was a man that God called out and filled with his spirit to do something new, which was old, returning to simply teaching God's word simply. And if the man succeeds in his leadership and others begin to rally around the mission, the work moves beyond the man and becomes, secondly, a movement. This is the natural progression. The idea of one man now becomes a cause for many. And because people feel like they're a part of something dynamic, creative, new, purposeful, they get involved, they advocate, they promote. And while all true movements spread organically, at some point, when enough people have bought into the movement, the movement morphs into, thirdly, A machine. What up until that moment had been a dynamic, free, unstructured movement, things begin to do something interesting. They begin to mechanize, structure, organization, routine. A machine is built to ensure the success and longevity of the movement. And yet, almost inevitably, the machine itself, the structure that flowed out of the movement, becomes the object of attention. It becomes the object of attention, the focal point. It, the structure, belonging to it, participating in it, becomes the focus of those who are involved. Slowly, the machine becomes so regimented that it begins to lose life, the life it once had as a movement. And in the end, the machine becomes finally a monument, or you could say a mausoleum. Tragically, When this final stage is reached, the original vision, the original excitement, the energy, the passion of the man and the movement are all but dead and gone. It's how movements die. Innovation is replaced with tradition. Untested ideas with safe go-tos, cutting edge for tried and true, fresh perspectives for trusted experience, risk-taking with we've always done it this way annual anniversaries are celebrated more frequently than tales of exciting new adventures. This is why, friend, our focus as a church and specifically yours as a Christian should always be on the man, Christ Jesus. With your dependency always being found on nothing but the source of all life, that being the Holy Spirit. It will keep you from dying. It's true, historically, that in most instances, the transition from movement to machine takes place after the man who started the movement dies because the man initiated things. No one can take that place. The natural compulsion of those left within a movement is to compensate for the lack of leadership with organizational structure. It's one of the main reasons organic movements become organized Machines. It's something Calvary Chapel is struggling with right now after Pastor Chuck has passed away. And yet, we can and should resist this tendency. Why? Because the man is still alive. That Jesus is alive and well. The problem with Sardis, the problem with Lutheranism, is that the focus was a man that wasn't Jesus. See, if Jesus is the head of the church, if Jesus is the pastor of the church, if Jesus is the initiator of the movement, nothing needs to die No, because there's no transition. He's alive, he's a well. He is the one who lives, who was dead, who behold is alive forevermore. Jesus today is our advocate, mediator, high priest in heaven. He's the pastor of this church. He started the movement and he still sees through the day-to-day operations. There's no reason to mechanize because the man is still alive and he calls the shots and he dictates what we do and what we don't do. Jesus is the head. Do you want to, if the head is removed, you're just a chicken running around that hasn't figured out it's dead. Got to keep the head on top. Jesus in his preeminent role. You know, There are two fundamental differences between a movement and a monument. First, movement is a characteristic of the living. You know? If you have a two-year-old who's not moving, you have a problem, right? Movement, it's evidence of the living, whereas a monument eulogizes the dead. Sadly, many seeking to justify the structure of the machine. They say this. They say, hey, all living organisms are organized. That's true, but so are dead ones. They're also very organized. They're not moving at all. It's easy to keep track of them. You see, the essential difference between alive and dead is not organization, but it's a spirit. It's the spirit of God. It's the moving of God's spirit. This church in Sardis and those of the Protestant Reformation were dead. Why? Because they weren't doing enough? No. It's because they were no longer seeing Jesus as the head and relying on the Holy Spirit, the source of life. This morning, if you're feeling dead, you know, spiritually, that things have grown stale, Or or, or you feel like the creep of death. You're tired and you're worn out. You feel powerless, lethargic, even apathetic. This race, it's long and wearisome. This morning, Jesus is saying something to you very specific. Wake up and remember how desperately you need to continuously receive by faith, not works, the fresh life-giving, filling of the Spirit. Secondly, movement demands present activity, whereas a monument is defined as a fixed object. Like it's simply a reality that movements intrinsically focus on future advancements while monuments only commemorate past achievement. Like we know that about movements versus monuments. Christian, by looking at the example we have here in this letter to the church of Sardis. Never forget this. Your forward spiritual motion, life, is in grave danger of death. If you not only take your eyes off of Jesus and are no longer depending on the Holy Spirit, but if you do this, if you begin to reminisce and celebrate more, about the things God did in your life than the work he's currently doing. You know, it's, 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 it's easy to tell when someone's dying because you ask them, what's God doing? And all they say is what he's done, that there's nothing happening in the moment. Sardis was a city dying. And all they could talk about is how great they once were but they were dying. You know, Paul, and we'll close with this thought, but Paul says something I think, I think is interesting and I think we don't carry it far enough and it's still relevant. He says in Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14, he says, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. I don't know everything, but one thing I do know. He says, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, when when we look at that, we often talk about, you know, Paul being able to let go of his sin, the condemnation that came with all of the poor decisions he made as Saul, the persecution of the church, the killing of the brethren. But in this moment, Paul's in a jail at the end of his life. Paul's not just qualifying that it's important for me to forget those things which are behind that are bad, But I think Paul is saying, I forget those things which are good, those past victories. Like I'm running a race. If at any point I look back for whatever reason, if I take my eyes off of what's in front of me, I run the risk of tripping and falling and injuring myself. I've got to stay forward, not just with the sin in your life, but also the victory. And Christian, the same is true with you if you cheat on your wife and you're like, well, let's just look at behind. You know, the last 30 years has been awesome. I've loved you. Does that mean a hill of beans a difference? You think she cares? And it, it matters about the moment. Like I hope you realize that you're one decision away from ruining your life. All of us. One bad decision away from ruining everything. You've run so great, so far, so strong. And here you are, if you let up at all, if you get distracted by what's behind at all, like that. It's not a monument, it's a movement. And Paul says, I forget, I forget those things which are behind and I'm looking. And who's he always looking to? Well, he says, he says, I press towards the goal for the upward prize of God in Christ Jesus. Paul. He would say that my race, that Jesus is the author and the finisher. That for Paul, the destination was not earth, the destination was heaven and the destination was Jesus. What, what do we learn if we pull it all down into its simplest form this morning from Sardis? Death is a real symptom. It happens in the life of Christians. And how do we safeguard ourselves from falling into that trap? We have to keep the head in his place. And that being Jesus, no other man holds that position, but him and he alone. If you follow anyone else, they will let you down. I promise. Secondly, we need to stay so dependent on the Holy Spirit because as soon as we depend on anything else, we are on the slow march of spiritual death. We're detaching ourselves from the very source of our life. And that's the spirit. Not just an interaction with the spirit that happens at salvation, but according to the book of Acts, one that continues throughout our life. That this morning, if you're feeling like you're dying, well, the solution is an infusement of life And you can ask Jesus to fill you this morning, and he will anew. But then the third thing, past glory or future glory? Is your Christian life about what God has done or what God is doing and is planning to do? Is it all about the past or is it about a future and about the present? because if any of these things are out of place, we run the risk of being Sardis. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches.